Hi there, you're listening to the Practical Stoic Podcast with your host, me, Simon Drew. If you'd like to listen to over 200 episodes that were recorded before 2020, then you can head to my Patreon site. It's patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. We'd love to have you there and any support is greatly appreciated. We'd love to also have you on our Facebook community, The Practical Stoic Mastermind. But for now, enjoy the show. Hi there, my name's Simon Drew and welcome to The Practical Stoic Podcast. Now today we have one of my favorite recurring guests, none other than Roderick Yap. Uh, So many of you will know Rod from a previous episode that I did with him, and you can find that episode in my Patreon site. Uh, So just head to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew, and you can get that and many other episodes there as well. So, uh, but for today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Rod in case you haven't heard him before, uh, and then we're going to dive into the episode. But uh, strap in because he's got quite the resume here. So... Roderick Yap is an accredited coach and specialist in developing resilience and leadership skills. A former Royal Marines officer, he was fortunate enough to lead Marines on operations around the world, including Afghanistan in 2007 and the evacuation of civilians from Libya during the Arab Spring. Roderick also led the recapture of the 55,000-ton MV Monte Cristo uh, from pirate control in 2011 as a part of a NATO counter-piracy task force off the coast of Somalia. So he also left the Royal Marines to embark on a new career uh, with the aim of using his experience to develop people and change organizational culture. He joined the Urenko Group, where he was responsible for assessing the level of leadership capability within the organization and coaching leaders to create high-performing teams with a focus on delivery and execution. So today, Roderick brings his significant coaching experience to supporting leaders and developing leadership development around resilience workshops across a multitude of sectors, including professional services, asset management, banking, retail, rating agencies, and many others. Uh, Given his background, he is well-suited to developing people in sectors and situations where leadership failure can pose considerable uh, systemic risk. He also works with clients across the world, helping them to establish a more resilient human system as a driver to individual and organizational performance. So Roderick has delivered a TEDx talk on adaptive leadership techniques from his experience on military operations in Afghanistan, and he's also a keen writer. So without any further ado, all of the links are in the show notes. Make sure you head there and check out everything that he's doing. And seriously, you're going to love this conversation with Roderick Yap. So I present to you none other than Roderick Yap. Okay, so we are here uh, once again. Very lucky to have him back with uh, the amazing Roderick Yap. Uh, now, Rod, we were just talking before the show and uh and I was kind of sharing with you my kind of vision for this podcast where I'd like to take it, you know, and trying to focus on the essence of what Stoicism was and, and, and the questions that these Stoics were trying to answer. And, you know, I really do believe that the biggest question that they tried to answer is how can we be effective human beings? You know, where do we even fit into this universe? And then when we understand where we fit into the universe, it's like, you know, how should we live? How do we live a good life and how do we be effective? Uh, and 
and so, you know, I'm really fortunate to have had contact with people like you in the past because you can really give us an extremely unique and profound understanding of, of what it means to be a human being because you've been in some of the, uh, the most high-pressure environments that anybody could, could ever imagine being in. I mean, um, you know, commando in, in the, uh, the Royal British Marines, um, you know, absolutely incredible. I mean, you spent time in Afghanistan, you spent time fighting pirates off the coast of Somalia, which is one of the most badass things anybody could ever say that they've done. Right. And so, you know, you've, you've been in these high pressure environments. Um, and I, so I'm going to give you the chance just to, to recap my audience, you know, tell them a little bit about who you are, what you've done. Um, and of course about the work that you're doing with leadership at the moment. Um, and then we'll jump into a discussion and I'm going to get you to answer the lifelong question of what it means to be a human being. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, so, uh, where to start. So I, I joined the Royal Marines in 2005. Um, it was my first career at a university. Um, and when I sort of reflect on kind of why I did that, there's sort of a number of reasons. Um, one really was that I wanted to, I, I wanted to live a life that was worth living. I wanted to do something that was different, something that was challenging and something, and something that mattered. Um, and during my 20s, when the only real responsibility I had was to myself, I wanted to go and take some risk and, and sort of go and get some unusual life experiences. Um, I, the challenge of joining the Royal Marines kind of really appealed to me, as well as the opportunity to to be something rather than do something. And I know that, that there's a some people might argue that that's kind of semantics but but it's not i think joining the military much like teaching much like being a doctor is more vocational um it's something that you are it's not something that you do but i really kind of wanted to have that um so i joined in 2005 um with 60 other officers i was one of i think 32 33 to pass out of training um in 2007 i found myself serving on the front line in afghanistan um in a place called sangin uh, in Helmand province. Um, and I, you know, even though that was a demanding experience, I consider myself really lucky to have done that. Um, there's lots of people that have served in the military um, that have frankly gone through the training, but have never been tested in an, in an environment quite like that. And that's, that's absolutely not their fault. I was just fortunate to be uh, in the military at a time where we were doing lots of stuff. Um, I did a few sort of other jobs. I worked with the Navy. I did a job in recruitment. Um, before I then deployed again in sort of 2011 to get civilians out of uh, Benghazi when the Gaddafi regime collapsed. Um, and that was really exciting. You know, that was one of the reasons I sort of joined was to kind of be deployed at short notice to the world's hotspots, uh, to go and sort of help people. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was sort of a cracking experience. Um, interestingly enough, uh, once we'd evacuated these people from Benghazi and you know, you've got to think that sort of Gaddafi's troops were surrounding the city. This is where the rebellion had come from. He was a dictator. Dictators tend to crush dissent. Um, you know, we were looking at the sort of streets running red kind of situation, which was when we went in to get these people out. Um, when we evacuated them, got them on board HMS York and took them back to, uh, I think it was Malta, to sort of to, 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 to let them off. It was a hell of a rough sea, really rough journey. The Mediterranean really kicks up around the kind of February, March time. Um, lots of people being seasick. Uh, and when we dropped people off in, in, in Malta, one person said to me, 
Um, if I knew it was going to be as rough as that, I probably would have stayed, which kind of uh, kind of makes you uh, kind of makes you realise kind of how ri- ridiculous some things can be in those sort of situations. Um, and then towards the end of my career, I specialised in counter piracy. Um, was lucky enough to lead the recapture of a 55,000 ton container ship from pirate control. Um, and then go and act as a witness for the prosecution in a trial in the Seychelles um, and a trial in Rome, uh, which was great. Um, I left in 2012. I went and worked in the nuclear industry for a couple of years. My job there sort of evolved into kind of uh, specializing in sort of operational excellence. Um, I took to that like a duck to water. I I love lean. Um, I love that kind of way of thinking um, about finding the best way to do things. and then sort of kind of standardizing that process and kind of everyone moves forward together. Um, and then in 2015, I founded my own business, uh, focusing on leadership development, largely because I realized that, that, you know, firstly, that was what I enjoyed most during my time in the military. It was about kind of developing my Marines, helping them become better at what they did. Um, the mm-hmm. better that they were, the more of an impact and an effect that we could have on whatever it was we were trying to do. I really enjoyed that part of my career. Um, And then I realized that, you know, lots and lots of managers are frankly let down by the organization because they're promoted because they're good at doing a job. And then it's like, right, you, you, you've demonstrated a great couple of years of, you know, selling stuff in this organization. Now you're leading a team, get on with it. And they make all kinds of mistakes and they really sort of struggle with this and the organization, because it's promoted you for being good at doing something almost reinforces that. So when you come under pressure, you're like, well, I know how to sell. So I'll just do more of that rather than taking a step back and kind of leading the team. Um, That was a problem that I wanted to sort of work on and contribute to because frankly, if I can help someone lead even slightly better, that has a knock on positive impact for them. And then all the people that they subsequently lead throughout the rest of their career. And it's just mm. some small way of making a sort of slight difference, a kind of a kind of incremental effect. So that's largely what I'm doing now. Mm. Yeah, I love it. I've got I've got many questions for you based on that because you've just had such an interesting experience and such a wide range of experiences as well. Uh, I, I guess the the first question I'll leave the deeper question for a second, but the first question is: so when when you're teaching leadership, it seems like in society, we encourage people to, uh, you know, try and change the society from a bottom up approach. You know, you change yourself, then you, you know, you can better take care of your family, then you can better take care of your community, then your country, then the world. Right. So, you know, don't try to fix the world before you fix your own life. Right. Um, but in, in companies and leadership, there seems to be a top down approach, right. Where you say, okay, well, you know, Sure, if the individuals are working well, that's great. But if you don't have a strong leader at the top, right? If you don't have that person who's who's you know governing in a really uh, effective way, uh, I mean, the, the whole organization is going to crumble. So, can you talk to us a little bit about the importance that you see in having a really strong leader at the top, somebody who can lead effectively, and what it means even to to be an effective leader? Um. So I think I think you absolutely need someone at the top of an organization that believes in the importance of leadership and, and believes that that's kind of a, a kind of key thing. Um, leadership is something, though, that's done by behavior. Uh, it's not really what you say that counts. It's what you do. It's how you mm. act. It's um, the way in which you 
interact with people, um, how you handle stress, how you handle pressure, how you manage people through a kind of combination of sort of challenging them when they need to be sort of pushed a little bit, but also supporting them when they're thinking, you know, when they think things are sort of quite difficult. Um, and I think that in the best organizations I've worked in, um, you have a leadership team or certainly a group of people or a kind of cohort of managers who believe that leadership is kind of their innate responsibility. Lots of organizations will try and delegate this sort of thing to HR. So for example, one of your individuals, one of your people isn't performing, I'll send, you know, send them to HR. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not what it's about. It's about having those difficult conversations with people. It's about taking ownership for the performance of them as a group of individuals. And I think the really key thing and what I, what I spend a lot of time trying to shift the way in which people think about their roles. Um, so in a really sort of bizarre way, um, a lot of people will think that they work for their managers and then the managers work for the directors and the director works for the CEO of the organization. The trouble is when people are kind of looking upwards, the, the customer or whatever the work is that's being done kind of gets neglected. So for example, you might go into a supermarket, right? You have no interaction with the CEO. You probably don't know who they are, okay? Your interaction is with the person on the kind of shop floor, um, the sort of frontline employee. And if your interaction with that individual is positive because that individual cares about the organization, feels engaged, feels like they matter because they have a good relationship with their line manager, among other things, then, then that interaction is going to feel positive. So my view is, is often or what I have to do initially is get people to go, no, that's not the way it works. You know, people don't work for managers. Managers don't work for directors. Directors don't work for CEOs. It's the other way around. Hmm. Your job as the CEO is to improve and to improve the performance of your directors and serve them. Your job as directors is to improve the performance of your team of managers. And your job as managers is to improve the performance of your people. Okay. Now, if you do that all the way through, if you have this sense that the customer of the leader is the team, that is the number one priority, you really start to shift things within the organization. Mm. Because ultimately, um, people start to sort of think differently about the relationships they have between their manager and their team. You think about what irritates people, what frustrates them, what causes high levels of employee turnover. Most of the time, it's the friction they have between um, what they're trying to get done and the relationship they have with their kind of manager. And so getting people to kind of think differently and sort of take responsibility and almost, um, and it is a paradox, get comfortable with a paradox that you serve your team. Your job is to improve the performance of them. Everything else that you do in a week is secondary to that. Everything else. Mm. That's what kind of shifts the needle. And getting people to realize that it's, again, it's all about behavior. So it's the moment they walk into the organization, it's what they wear, it's how they interact, it's how they behave under stress and pressure at their kind of weakest moments. All of their people are looking to them for cues on how to behave. So if you lose your temper with someone because, you know, you've had a bad morning and you fail to sort of manage your irritation or frustration which, with something that isn't going right, what you're basically doing is telling everyone else in the organization, it's okay to behave like that. It's okay to do that. Mm. And I, I would argue it's just not, you know, if ever you kind of subsequently regret a behavior, 
um, then you kind of want to think about, well, what are the conditions that led me to behave in that kind of way? What am I going to do differently next time? Um, because that's fundamentally it. It's, it. It is about setting that example. It is about managing your own behavior in order to get the best out of you. Mm. I love that. I think that that's a, that's a really cool insight that it, it's kind of like everybody's looking at the manager and then this, you know, the, the managers above the managers and then the CEO, uh, essentially what you're saying is no turn around, look at who you're responsible to, uh, whether it is the client or whether it is, you know, your, your salespeople or whatever. And like, and make sure that you're focusing on that relationship being the most effective that it can be and, and, and essentially leading by example as well. Like that's, that's really powerful to, to, you know, cause a lot of people do really focus on the person who's above them in the organization, whether it's like, you know, oh, I'm late for work. My manager's going to be annoyed or, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah. there's that kind of everybody's looking at you turn around, focus on your own job, focus on exactly what your duty is in the company, right? And that was one of the kind of earliest lessons I learned in the Marines. I had a really good company commander, the sort of first, first one I ever had. His, his mantra was, look after the guys, everything else will take care of itself. The moment you start looking out for yourself and your career and starting to impress people at a senior level is the moment you start to lose it. Look downwards, look after the men, you know, drive hard levels of performance out of them. It's okay to be demanding. Um, it's okay to push them hard, but look after their needs. You know, make sure that you know them, you understand where they want to go in their careers. Do they want to be a future general or, or do they just want to do a few years and, and sort of punch out and go do something different? Both of them are okay. They're fine. That mm. The answer is kind of irrelevant, but you have to know it in order to sort of manage them. And when you sort of think about it, when you go out sort of, you know, off the coast of Somalia, you go out to the front line of Afghanistan, it's not me that makes the kind of difference um, as, as a sort of single individual. But if I can create a cohesive team who want to fight for each other, who believe that their leadership have their back if and when they make mistakes, um, then ultimately that's going to have more of an impact on the enemy, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. And in a weird way, it's just it's in, in a corporate organization, it's just thinking about all the enemy are is a group of people that you want to have an impact on, but that's exactly all your customers are, all your clients are. So it's just shifting that thinking and replacing them. Obviously, you don't want to kill your customers or clients. You may want to do that to the enemy, but it's kind of the same way of thinking. Look after the people that work for you. Everything else takes care of itself. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I think that's really powerful. And, and you know, you, you take it back to your military service. I, I do want to segue now and jump into that because... You said something earlier, uh, you said that your deployment to Afghanistan, uh, it, it was a cracking time, right? And I think a lot of, I think a lot of people would be listening to this and they'd be thinking a cracking time. What does he mean by that? Like, <laughs> you know, like, like you know, going over there and, and, and serving in the military and, you know, going into these high pressure situations. I think you have a really unique perspective on one thing in particular that I'm really interested in, in diving into with you. And that is human beings capacity, both for good and for extreme evil, right? You, you've seen, mm -hmm. you've seen both. What has that led you to understand about people? Like, like, I, I don't know. I just kind of want to open that question up to you. Yeah, yeah. So this whole good evil thing 
is kind of interesting and I sort of have thought about it kind of quite a lot um, because it's a really simplistic kind of way of looking at things. Um, mm. I don't think that people are born good. I don't think that they are born evil. There's just people and their behavior. And when you kind of dig beneath it, there's often, there's a, there's a sort of graphic I've used a number of times called, I think I've referred to it as sort of the, the Freudian iceberg. So um, you've got an individual's results, which is driven by their behavior. That's the stuff that you see, right? But underneath the surface, underneath the iceberg are the things that you don't see, which is how they think, how they feel, all of which is driven by a combination of their environment, their, the, the sort of the nurture, the kind of culture they grew up in, but also their nature, um, their kind of human nature, if you like. Um, and all behavior is driven by those things. Now, it really depends on your kind of belief systems. Um, for example, if you take uh, a terrorist, um, or someone that we would we would call a terrorist, an Islamic fundamentalist, for example, a member of the Taliban. Okay, they have an entirely different way of thinking about the world, an entirely different set of belief systems. Um, a lot of which is driven around the fact that you know the afterlife is kind of a a better place than the world in which they're currently living in. Now, I'm not seeking to judge that. That's kind of unhelpful, but. If you understand that, you can see why they behave in a way that they do, okay? Why they interact like that. And equally in Afghanistan, um, this is a group of, you know, warring tribes and factions that have no concept of a centralized government. You know, you talk to them about, you know, Kabul, they're like, well, why, do I, why do I care about Kabul? Like, that's totally irrelevant to me. That's a totally different sect or type kind of group. And what I found it easier to sort of think about, certainly if I think about Afghanistan, was don't think about it as geographically different. Think about it as a kind of almost time warp. That's probably not dissimilar to how Europe would have looked almost in the Middle Ages in terms of kind of its development. Um, warring tribes and factions that don't like each other, that occasionally club together, to fight a common enemy if it sort of serves their interest, those kind of, that mm. kind of way of thinking about it. And so this whole concept of, of sort of good and evil, um, I have, I, I try and avoid thinking about it because I think, or not try and avoid thinking about it. I don't think it's helpful. I don't really think mm. judgment in any kind of form is helpful. Um, and the way I've kind of shifted my thinking over the last sort of few years is thinking about things in terms of, is it helpful? Is it useful? Does it help me live a better life? Or is it kind of unhelpful? And I think the moment that you sort of start to judge people, you stray into this territory of, of it being an unhelpful kind of way of thinking. Because the reality is, you don't know what's going on underneath the surface. You don't know what kind of pain or challenges or stories they've told themselves that, that is kind of shaping their behavior. I think I saw it, it really kind of resonated with me when I saw a, a sort of graphic that sort of talked about um, Star Wars, but kind of using a slightly different narrative, you know, which was something along the lines of, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but, you know, um, Luke Skywalker, um, a, an orphaned child um, who joins an ancient religious sect um, in a sort of, uh, a, 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 yeah, an ancient religious sect who goes on uh, to commit a mass atrocity 
um, by blowing up this sort of, you know, this planet system. And you start to think about it and you go, hang on a sec, you know, uh, Luke Skywalker going up against sort of this big, you know, highly resourced, dominant evil empire. You know, it, it, if you just sort of shift that narrative slightly and, and sort of think differently about it, could you see the US as an evil empire? Well, it kind of depends on where you sort of grew up. And again, not seeking to judge, you know, this is seeking to kind of understand those sort of different perspectives. Um, and I think that, you know, if you're interested in kind of, you know, in evil and sort of understanding extremely bad, violent, um, unpleasant behavior, there's loads of science. Uh, there's loads of experiments that have been done on this that show that humans can very, very quickly um, behave in ways that traditionally they thought of, they would have thought of absolutely kind of reprehensible. Mm. Um, the Stanford Prison Experiment um, is a sort of good example. There's a sort of variety of things there. And it kind of makes you realize that, hang on a sec, I like to think I'm really self-directed, but the reality is, is my role models, my environment, people's in positions of authority have a huge impact on my behavior. And I think all you can really do is sort of be aware of that um, and sort of guard against it and realize that there aren't good people and there aren't bad people. There's just people. And a lot of their behavior is shaped by how they think and the context and the environment they're facing. I think that is a more helpful way of thinking about it. Mm. No, I think that's a, that's a really interesting insight, and and I I would I'd have to agree. You know, I think I think it is a really helpful way of thinking about it, and you know, it even makes me think of um, you know you know the way that the Stoics think about our place in the universe. You know, like if this is a well ordered whole, you know, if nature is you know everything sort of fits into the ecosystem of nature, and um, you know we're not separate from nature, uh, but we are in many ways being you know, our lives are being run by nature, right? Like we tend to think that we're in more control than what we actually are. But in reality, uh, I mean, if you think about it, what we do doesn't necessarily always run the show. And so even to imagine ourselves in the perspective of another person, it's hard to do because you're imagining yourself from what you think that they think. But how could you possibly mm. understand what they think, right? Like you, you don't have mm. the 20, 30, 40, 50 years of experience that they do thinking what they think and having that so deeply ingrained, um, you know, the way I, I kind of put it, it's like, you know, nature is what, what forms us, you know, it creates us. Uh, culture is what then goes on to shape us even more. And then, you know, kind of philosophy is what guides us. And, you know, these kind of ideologies, religions, beliefs, philosophies that we all come into, you know, come into contact with. And once you've got those three combinations forming you into some sort of human being, it's so hard to imagine how anybody can possibly change, how anybody can, can see a different perspective than the one that they're currently in, right? Mm. I, I, I like the way that you put that. I like the the kind of three ways of kind of thinking about it. Your your nature, sort of kind of you know what creates you. Your culture, what what sort of shapes you, and and lastly your philosophy in terms of kind of what guides you. I think um, I think the majority of people don't really kind of think about it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I start with the with the kind of end, if I start with this sort of philosophy everyone lives some form of philosophy, right? Um, Mm. But it may not be a conscious one. Everyone has, I mean, philosophy really answers the question or tries to answer the question, how do I live a good life? 
what does a good life look like? Um, but very, very few people, I think, really kind of think about that. They don't very often kind of start with this concept of, I've only got one of them. So I probably want to think about how to live it in the sort of best way possible. Those are really big sort of scary questions. And I think that um, lots of people would have been familiar with kind of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. You know, I found that really helpful. You know, start with the concept to the end in mind. Like you're lying on your deathbed. You have 30 seconds to impart some advice to one of your great-grandchildren. What do you say? Because ultimately what that's getting you to sort of think about is, is this concept of what does a good life look like? How, how should I live? Those mm. kind of questions. And I think they're, they're inherently really scary. So people avoid them um, and they don't sort of try and think about them. Um, and one of the things that I found hugely helpful about stoicism or hugely valuable is this kind of idea that, that so whatever created us created us incomplete and part of your or part of your your kind of mission in life part of what you're about is to kind of seek wisdom to sort of dig underneath the surface to understand your nature what is it that makes you tick um and i read a fascinating book called on evolutionary psychology by a guy called david buss that really kind of digs into the detail and starts to make you challenge some things around kind of free will but really helps you kind of understand and clarify that that we are designed in such a way that was frankly really helpful and and sort of you know ultimately has kept our ancestors and the kind of chimps that came before us alive for the last sort of 50,000 years a lot of that circuitry a lot of that design a lot of those mental programs still run in us today and cause us all kinds of problems in the modern world um, the role in which sort of your culture uh, your environment shapes you. If you look at how, for example, people approach conflict, how they approach a disagreement with their spouse or partner, often I found that when you ask them the question around how did, how did your parents argue, how did they fight, how did they engage in sort of conflict, lots of people will go, oh my God, I basically behave exactly like my dad did when, when he was having an argument with my mum. And you're just sort of shining a spotlight onto the look, you know, huge amounts of this are huge amounts of the way you behave now are shaped by kind of what came before you sort of positively and negatively. And I think the kind of first step in one of the, one of the most important steps a person can make in terms of their self-development is kind of understanding that and realizing that, you know, I've got all of this stuff that sits underneath the surface, like everyone else. If I can understand it, I can understand its kind of impact. I can, I can be aware of it and realize how it has an impact on my decision-making, the way in which I live my life now. Um, and I found that hugely valuable, really, again, mm. helpful. helpful yeah. No, I, I think that is really helpful. And, and, you know, I think we're, we're sitting here talking about how to live a good life. We're sitting here thinking about how we can kind of consciously sit down for a moment. You know, the fact that we get to sit down for an hour, you're on one side of the world, I'm on the other, um, and we're discussing, you know, philosophy. What's really helpful about the way that you approach this is it leaves room for a lot of empathy and understanding, right? Because I mean, when you think about it, you've seen places where, you know, from day one, from as soon as they're born into this world, 
people in these places are in a constant state of flight or fight, right? It's just constant, just survival, just pure survival, right? I mean, you even think of of what's happened in, in, in Syria over the past couple of years. Like imagine growing up in Syria and, you know, yeah. for, for us to even think that people over there could even have the time to sit down in their day and think, hmm, how do I live a good life? You know, it's just, it's just impossible, right? Like, can you speak to that, that, that idea of having empathy for people? And this is, this is what the Stoics would have wanted, right? And this is what they taught. It's like, it's like man, some people, it's just, it's just rough for them. And you've just got to be, you've just got to be kind to people. You've got to be the best version of yourself that you can be. And you've got to understand that some people really just don't have a good, good fate in life. Right. Yeah. And I think kind of really, yeah, really sort of understanding, really understand. It's, it really is kind of seeking not to judge people's behavior. Um, but sort of like trying to understand it. Like if you, if you judge people, then you, you're, you're kind of, you're drawing opinion about them that you're not, that, that means you kind of, you can just put them in that bucket of good or bad. And I just don't think it's, mm. I, it's not helpful. Um, I, I remember one of the things that really kind of, I guess it was silly that it sort of surprised me, but when we arrested sort of pirates off the coast of Somalia, you know, we'd have some, we'd, we would have to process them um, as detainees. We'd have various forms to fill out. You know, on one of the forms was, you know, a date of birth. Where were you born and um, when? And lots of these guys, they didn't know the answer to that. Mm. You know, there's huge numbers of people that would be like, well, you know, I was born under a bush. And it's like, well, they have no concept of almost, not time, but, you know, there's, so there's no birthday. There's no... Um, concept of a sort of celebration like that or or kind of anything kind of anything remote remotely sort of similar to it um and you just realize that my god that experience that they have grown up with is so unbelievably different to mine that even designing kind of a simple form to process these people they don't fit in with that they because they just you know they have no concept of some of the things that i'm asking them to sort of fill out they're not being cagey. It's just that their experience is so massively removed from mine. Um, and I think that this understanding this makes me realize how damn lucky I was to be born just frankly in, in the West, in the developed world, mm. to live underneath a kind of democracy where, you know, there is a rule of law. You know, frankly, it, it's, it's almost a bit of a miracle that, that, that that's kind of happened um, because for huge numbers of people, they don't live in anything like that. As you said, every single day, the question isn't how do I live a good life? How do I create some form of fulfillment? It's like, how do I survive? So that guy over that hill doesn't kill me. How do I make sure that I've kind of got enough food? Now, when you sort of flip it around, if I'd kind of been grown, if I'd grown up in Somalia, um, would I pick up a rifle? and uh, go and have a crack at maybe a, a sort of ship passing by, sort of seek to kidnap them and take them for ransom, I probably would, yeah. because that means that I can effectively provide for my family. So when I was dealing with these pirates and when I was sort of, you know, creating the conditions for 
I guess, how my Marines behaved, my line was always, listen, be firm. Got no problem with that. Be firm, grip these guys. I don't want them to think that they can, um, that they've got a potential opportunity if we're not really assertive with them. However, we treat them firmly, but we treat them fairly. Because if you were born in a different part of the world, chances are you would be picking up a rifle and do something like this. Yeah. And again, like that, that it's just my behavior, my kind of leadership creates the conditions for, for the environment. Um, and being really clear about those things meant that, you know, if some of the guys were wherever outside of those boundaries, I could come down on them and say that is, you know, completely unacceptable and sort of, you know, and grip them and sort of maintain the kind of moral authority that, that my role required me to have. Um, mm. That's kind of sort of how I think about it then. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and, you know, people just don't understand that you, we all tend to think that, uh, you know, for example, if we had have gone back, if we were born in the time of Nazi Germany, we, we all seem to think that we wouldn't have been the person to pick up the gun and, you know, and, and, and do the things that they did. But in reality, 99.99% of us would have done exactly what they did. You know, and and it's it's yeah. the same. It's and and when you can step outside of yourself and 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 see that, then you really can have compassion. But it's also about you know, a lot of people in the world are stacking up at zero, and when you have absolutely nothing to lose, you'll you'll do anything. You, you know, and you can imagine yeah. that for yourself. It's like, man, if if I had absolutely nothing to lose and my life was just so crap and and everything that's bad happened to me over my life and you know my parents left me and you know yeah born under a bush and then you know can't provide for my family why wouldn't you jump on a boat and try to hijack a you know i think you said fifty-five thousand ton ship yeah you know? like why wouldn't you and and so that can really leave a lot of room for for a lot of empathy and and i think that's a really important perspective i think that's something that has to be in the rule book for how to be an effective human being, right? That true understanding that if you were in that person's situation, you know, not that you can even imagine being in that situation, but if you were, you would be doing exactly what they're doing or something similar, right? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I think it's again, like, is it, uh, it's just, a, is it a more useful way of thinking? Mm. I think so. You know, is it is, and, and that's kind of what I'm trying to. I guess what I'm thinking more about is it is it is it useful? Is it helpful, or or is it not? And I think yeah. you know, empathy is one of those things that kind of you really people really detect it in you. Um, and doing a lot, you know, my my role is kind of to develop leaders, but also, you know, one of the things I do is is um, is act as a coach. So you know, I spend a couple of hours with someone talking about you know the challenges that they're having. Like lots of their behaviors, you know, if I treat to choose to judge it, I'm like, you know, Christ, I'm, that, that seems a bit odd. But then I'm like, well, hang on a sec. You had 15 months of leadership training before you led anyone. These mm. people have often had a spattering of coaching sessions, maybe a sheep dip development program. Okay. Don't judge them and expect them to kind of get it right all the time. They're not going to. That's what you're here to do to help shift them and become fractionally better. Um, fractionally better over a period of time can have quite significant results by just changing the way that they think and challenging some of the ways in which they've, they've done things. But again, not doing it from a position of this is how you lead people. Because frankly, 
I've led 20-something-year-old Marines in, in combat. Does that necessarily mean that I need to, I know how to lead a group of accountants through a massive transformation program? Well, it's a vehicle for leadership, but it, it's, not, it's not the whole thing. Again, I'm shaped by my experience and my context. It's useful in some areas, but equally, I think you have to be aware of the limitations of that experience. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Now, I appreciate you sharing all that. I think that's, that's a really important point that we've come to in the interview. And I want to somewhat shift gears now into the high pressure world of decision making in the field, right? Because you, you obviously have a better perspective than 90% of people on this earth about what it means to make a really high stake decision. Um, could you speak to us about your experience in the military and, and how you learned to uh, maybe give us an example of a time when you had to think in the second and, and what that pressure was like and how we can use those kinds of decision-making skills in, uh, in our modern lives, maybe in, in lives that are a lot easier than being on the front line of, <laughs> of a war. So, it's difficult to sort of detach the kind of conditioning and sort of training that I've sort of been through because whilst they were highly pressurized situations, I knew how to handle them. I knew what I was mm. doing. So like a highly pressurized situation might be working in accident and emergency for a doctor, but it, it kind of would be for me because I got none of that sort of training for them. It's like, this is just business as usual. I'm just triaging, problem solving, doing what I can. It's, it's almost like you're sort of conditioning and your training and sort of how you prepared for that environment uh, kind of shifts things from the conscious mind into the unconscious mind. So it becomes very much sort of automatic. Um, interestingly, when I sort of think about like, what, were there any times that I was really scared in Afghanistan? It was always before something happened because mm. you get this sense where hang on a sec last time we were in this area there were loads of women and children playing i'm sure five minutes ago there were children out on the streets they've all disappeared what's changed what's different um and moments when sort of kids come up to you and sort of point you in the direction that you're walking and say taliban taliban over there like those are moments where i was like mm, okay this is kind of scary. Weirdly, once it, it, once it kicks off, my sort of way of thinking about it was, and I guess the mental model I sort of created around this whole thing was, well, if I survive the first 30 seconds of a firefight, ultimately I'll probably survive the whole thing. And the reason is, is because if I can kind of get into cover quickly, um, they're probably starting to think about, right, we've, we've attacked them. We don't have huge amounts of force. We want to get out of here. It's a sort of shoot and scoot attack. We want to ambush them, loads of rounds and RPGs in their direction, and then we want to pull out as quickly as possible. So my logic was if I can survive those first 30 seconds, they're already starting to think about how do we get out of here. Um, and therefore, when it came to kind of making decisions under pressure, making decisions in that environment, the first thing was to make sure kind of I was safe, get down behind a wall or return fire until, you know, the round stopped coming in my direction. Once I was kind of into a position of relative safety, 
it was uh, it was effectively like, right, where do I think they are? What are the tools I've got at my disposal? And I was kind of into it. But it was one of those things that it was, I had practiced it over and over and over again. There was almost a sort of set of principles and almost like a formula in my head for how to deal with it. Mm. So that by the time I did it for real for the first time, and I'll never sort of forget that, it was something I kind of knew how to do. You know, I'd be speaking to someone who controlled the air we had overhead or someone who controlled the mortar line to sort of go, right, this is where I think they are. I want you to start, you know, raining bombs on them here. Um, this is where I think they're going to escape to. So I'm going to move a section over there and I'm going to try and cut them off. Um, it becomes very much almost like sort of following a, a process. It's managing something that is kind of, I guess, complicated. There are many ways in which you can go from A to B, but it's, it, it's been moved out of chaotic as quickly as it can. And some of the language I'm using there relates to something that I've recently kind of um, discovered, something called the Kinefin framework, which is a decision-making framework that, again, I've come across and I found it really helpful. Um, Kinefin is spelled Sinefin, C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. Um, and it's about understanding, right, which of these domains am I in and how do I need to behave in order to get the best out of the sort of situation? Um, and so for me, like even serving on the front line in Afghanistan, never felt massively pressured. The most stressful time I've ever had in my entire life was working for an organization. This was before I started my own business, a consulting organization where we used to sort of sell work and then work out how we were going to do that. And frankly, I didn't have the skills. I wasn't very good at it. And every day I turned up with this sort of ticking clock counting down, almost like it was sort of some kind of time bomb, but not knowing how to diffuse it. And that I found tremendously stressful because in the back of my mind, I always sort of thought, you know, if I die in Afghanistan, well, you know, obviously that's not an outcome I want, but you know, I won't have to live with the mistakes I make. Um, you know, my family will get a check. I'll kind of, you know, pass off into the next life as kind of a war hero, ideally. Um, but, you know, being fired from an organization or, you know, having to sit in these conversations when, frankly, you've got the answer wrong or you're, you're not getting to any level of kind of clarity of what the, what the client wants, that was absolutely horrendous. Um, that was that was a complex problem that I, I didn't know how to solve. You know, that's like being faced with almost kind of surgery and kind of working it out as you go along. Yeah. That would be massively stressful. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a huge amount about kind of, you know, how well are you conditioned? Do you know how to solve the problems that you're facing? Do you know how to kind of manage yourself um, internally to sort of manage the, that stress and those kind of things that are sort of going on underneath the surface? Um, or you're in an environment that is completely out of your depth. I think that, um, I think that, yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of worth thinking about those things and it's helpful to kind of contextualize it like that. Mm. Yeah. I think, um, I'm going to make a point now and, and it does relate to what you're saying, but I understand that what I'm about to say will completely reveal how soft my life is compared to yours. Um, but I think it's a good point nonetheless. Uh, I think that what you're saying there is kind of analogous to something that we were taught uh, in, in university uh, by our music teachers, right? 
And what they said was, you know, what you need to do is you need to, you know, practice, learn from the, the best musicians, you know, learn, learn the lines that you should learn. Um, you know, all of your practice for on stage happens in the practice room, right? But then before you get on stage, you need to forget about everything, forget about everything that you know, yeah. and you need to go up there and you just need to be there focusing on that one thing of performing at the best of your ability. But it's almost like as soon as you're on stage, when the stakes are high and you know that the audience is either going to love it or hate it, you just need to forget about everything that you've learned and just let your training take over. Right. And it seems like a yep. similar sort of situation that you were dealing with. It's like, okay, it's a high pressure situation, but you don't even have time to think in a situation like that. You need to fall back on your training and allow all of those hours of training to take over in that moment, which is another interesting point that actually Seneca talked about. Uh, you know, he talked about how uh, in every situation in life, we should look to the, to the warrior, to the, um, to the soldier for inspiration, because what they do is they spend hours and hours and hours, days and weeks and months training for that 30 second fight that they're going to have. Yeah. Because they know that it's in the training uh, that they are prepared for that 30 seconds. Right. Can you kind of talk about that importance of the training before you actually make these decisions or before you get into these high pressure situations? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the, the training is, is kind of, is kind of everything. Um, but it's, it's, so I think that, I, I think that, in the military, there's a sort of way in which we train, which is you, you go to a, a place, uh, you go to sort of Limston for the, for the Royal Marines, you go to Sandhurst if you're an army officer and you go through a kind of a period of training. And then um, there's a huge amount of also kind of on the job training. And I think that um, it's the kind of on the job training that is most, uh, most helpful to, to kind of other people. Um, or, or I guess more easily translatable into the sort of into the into the other world, um, into any other world really. Um, because if you think about it, like you know, what is it? What you, what is it you've kind of been asked to do? Or what is it you're about to do? Um, if you can detach yourself from the outcome and sort of think about um, how do I need to prepare? how do I need to behave in order to kind of get the outcome that I want? Then what you can start to sort of do is go, well, how do I create the feedback loops that sort of lead to a, a good outcome, if that makes sense. Hmm. So like, for example, um, and, and this requires a sort of slightly different, different kind of way of thinking about things. Um, I again found it really helpful to, to be really clear on the difference between my performance and my personality. So lots and lots of people, for example, um, in, so in order to get good at anything, you have to invest a certain amount of yourself in order to, um, in order to deliver a sort of good performance. So chances are when you went through university and you were studying music, you invested huge amounts of your, your, your time, your energy um, in becoming a musician. Now, that will take you to a really good level of performance. But if you want to go from good to great or great to world-class, you need to be able to divorce the two concepts apart. And you need to be able to detach yourself from almost the, the kind of performance on the day so that you can 
actively seek, but also listen and take on board and invite the feedback that others have. And I think that the way in which you kind of do that is if you sort of treat everything that you do as kind of like an experiment. So yeah, you absolutely work your ass off. You, you try your hardest to make sure that the, the recital or the performance that you're going to do or the leadership workshop or the coaching session is as good as it can be. But the moment you sort of start it, you detach yourself to go, it's an experiment. It's not the finished product. It can always be better. Others are going to mm. have a perspective of it. That's about my performance, but my personality remains intact. So for example, we could finish this call and I could say, you know, how was, how was all that? And you could say to me, uh, yeah, it was kind of, you, you kind of missed the mark with some of the things that you were talking about or your answers were the clearest should have been. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, can, I can invite that feedback and hopefully take it and go, right, yeah, fair enough. I can, I can sort of see that perspective. I can understand that. When I open the door to my study and I go and see the dog or when my children come home from school, they don't see any of that. They don't see what I've done all day. They see me for the person I am and they see me for my kind of personality. And again, in terms of ideas that are helpful to think about, I found it really helpful to think about your work and everything you do as an experiment. You shouldn't be seeking, you should be seeking perfection, but understanding that you kind of never get there, that mm -hmm. everything you do can be improved upon, but your personality is totally separate. The, the way in which your family interacts with you that's all about your kind of personality that remains intact. And often when I'm sort of working with people um, and I'm sort of, you know, going to give them some feedback or I'm going to say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to, I'm going to give you some difficult messages because I believe that you have the potential to meet what I consider it to be really high expectations. My expectations of you are really, really high. However, here's the thing personality performance you're a good bloke you're a good i like you i'm sure other people do i'm sure when you go home your wife wants to see you, all these kind of things if they don't then that's a different problem mm -hmm. um but ultimately my job is to kind of give you some feedback and help you get better at your performance and when you say those kind of things people go okay i'm now ready to sort of receive that message i'm now ready to kind of uh think about that reflect on it consider your points of view realize that it's one point of view, but equally, if I'm getting lots of very similar points of view or lots of similar feedback, maybe I need to do something differently. And again, that's kind of something that I sort of found, found really helpful. I'm struggling to come back to what was the original question and whether I've really answered it. Or, no, I, yeah, um, I think you've done a brilliant job, honestly. And, and I think it leads us into to a really interesting place. You know, I've, I've, I've been really thinking lately about the purpose of an ideal you know, and, and, you know, we talk about this even with, with Stoicism, it's the sage, you know, with Christianity, it's, it's Jesus Christ with it, it, like it, yeah. you know, Buddhism, it's, it's, you know, the Buddha, um, it, we all have the humans tend to be creatures that love to have this unattainable goal, right? We love to have mm. this absolutely unattainable thing in front of us that we're like, wow, I wish I could be like that, but I know I never can. And I think there's something really important to that because we really don't, you know, you talked about potential. We really don't know the limits of human, human potential. We have no way of knowing what that is. And so you kind of have to have an ideal that is so amazing that it's absolutely impossible to achieve. And as soon as you start to think that you're all that and that you've reached a certain point and 
you're good to go, you've completely lost the game of life because the game of life should be to constantly try to push yourself to your limits to understand just how far you can go. And I mean, look, that can become unhealthy. I mean, look, there's a lot of Eastern philosophy that is kind of like, you know, non-action, like, hey, listen, take it easy. Like, you know what to do, just stop pushing so much, you know, and, and there's a lot of philosophies, but in, in, in the end, all of them lead us to really trying to understand what our potential as human beings is, whether that is enlightenment or whether that's being the CEO of the biggest company in the world. Like it's like everybody's aiming at the same thing, really just trying to push our potential. Mm. But I really like what you're talking about there because essentially what you're saying is that everything needs to be an experiment, meaning everything needs to be an opportunity for you to get feedback uh, and I know that you talked about this in your, in your TEDx talk, right? Uh, you need to constantly be getting that feedback to find out how you can be better, push yourself more, find a better way of doing things, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's by divorcing those two concepts of personality and performance, it becomes easier to sort of seek those messages. Yeah. And by treating things as an experiment, it becomes easier to sort of do that. Um, Definitely. I think, I mean, you know, when you talk about sort of pushing potential, I mean, really, or, or or pushing people in order to kind of see how far they can go. Um, I've used, uh, I think it's the opening scenes from kind of Lone Survivor, which was sort of based around a, or, or, or took clips from a documentary on the US Navy SEALs training. And there's a lot of things in there that, that I think really kind of resonate and are kind of really kind of helpful ideas. If you think about kind of what, what they're going through, the, the sort of training, it's, it's pushing themselves to a limit. It's, pushing themselves to a point where they are on the cost or on the cusp or kind of moving into the sort of early stages of hypothermia to understand a what it feels like but e but b kind of you can go this far Mm. you can be incredibly uncomfortable cold wet hungry frankly you can push yourself to those absolute extreme limits and it's and it's designed, I guess, to, to develop a sort of sense of confidence in the individual that makes them sort of realize that, look, you know, no matter how bad it gets, it can always be worse. And how do you know that? Because you've been to a place where it's been worse. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, I find myself talking to a lot of people kind of about resilience and those sort of things. And I think one of the challenges is that people want to be resilient. They want that skill. They want to be able to handle pressure but they don't want to pay the price. Hmm. The price or the conditions required to create a form of resilience require you to be uncomfortable, require you to be uh, in some form of sort of physical discomfort or or dare I say it, pain, um, in order to realize that actually, do you know what? I can deal with this. Can I deal with 5% more? Can I deal with sort of 10% more? Uh, Yes, I can. And I think it's only by kind of discovering or sort of pushing those kind of boundaries that, that you sort of realize the person you are and also where your limits are. You ask people, certainly that you kind of work with on a daily basis, when was the last time you genuinely felt hungry? And most of them will say, well, you know, I was quite hungry kind of yesterday, just before lunch. I'm like, no, 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 no. Really hungry. Famished hungry. Whereby you would eat something that you don't like the flavor of purely because you know it's going to take this pain and discomfort and this 
this kind of absolutely horrific feeling away that you've got in the pit of your stomach. Oh, right. Okay. Well, very rarely, uh, possibly maybe even never. Mm. And you realize like that's a, that's a condition that people live in every single day. You know, forget like having choices around kind of what you eat. You know, if you're hungry enough, you'll eat anything. And this is something that I'm not, it sounds, it sounds like I can be sort of kind of quite harsh, but my, my sort of view is it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable. So my wife, and, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, my wife and my wife will always be sort of going, oh, my, you know, she, she, my daughter, Charlotte, she, she, she won't wear a coat. She won't wear a coat. And I'm like, okay, fine. Let her not wear a coat. And the way I start, the way I do it with her is go, right, you have a decision. You have, you have the responsibility to make this call. So here it is. You don't have to wear this coat now. However, you can't wear it until we get a mile away from the house. So you now have to make a call. Do you want to put it on now and see how warm it is outside? Or do you want to not wear it, but at which point you can't wear it for a mile? Now, it can get quite cold in the UK. It can get a bit wet. But I'm like, it, it's okay for her to feel the cold, the discomfort. You know, mm. it's, that's okay because it stimulates a change or it stimulates a different way of thinking whereby, do you know what, maybe when, when it's snowing outside and my dad says put on a coat, that, that might be a good idea. You know, to, it's, it, but it's giving her the ownership of kind of making the call. Um, mm. And I think being cold, being hungry, being a bit wet from time to time, there's sort of no... There's no harm in that. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's, if anything, it's kind of helpful. Uh, yeah. Um, some people will probably go, oh, that's just ridiculous. That's a really extreme. You know, that's like, you know, some form of abuse. I'm like, I would argue it isn't. I would argue that, that actually it's almost a form of abuse to give a child everything that they ever wanted. Yeah. To give them whatever they feel like they're eating. To give them sweets whenever they want it so that they damage their teeth and put on weight. I think that, again, it's, it's helpful to understand this concept of hurt versus harm. So, mm. for example, exercise hurts, but it's good for you. The chocolate bar doesn't hurt. It feels good, but it harms you. And when you're thinking about your sort of life philosophy, do you, do you have a grasp of those two concepts? Because, frankly, um, you just can't live your life in a permanent state of comfort. And if you try and do that, actually you'll just find yourself being numb the whole time. You know, it's part of the human experience to experience some form of discomfort. And I think this is one thing that the military does really well is that you kind of, you experience it frequently enough um, to remember that actually, do you know what, if I've just got a roof over my head, I've got I've kind of got everything I need. Um, but equally it's kind of a, it's a world in which you live, high highs and you find yourself in great environment like on the beach in the Seychelles you know with a with a can of cold beer in your hand or on the front line in Afghanistan having never slept and it's those kind of two really extremes that that I kind of enjoyed because I don't I never wanted to be kind of numb I never wanted to drift through life um complaining about the weather or you know, or just the trivia and my new shy. I went to a meeting in Manchester yesterday, um, client meeting, relatively new clients talk about some work with, that we're going to do. And on my way to the meeting, it was raining. A bus hit a pothole 
and I'm not joking, I got covered in shit brown, excuse <laughs> my language, crappy brown water. And I was like, oh my God, that's, that's irritating. Um, and it was one of those things where I was like, well, do you know what? If that's the worst thing that happens to me today or this week, it's a pretty good week. And the ability or the pace at which you can flip that way of thinking and go, that sucks. But you know what? That guy over there who's huddled underneath a group of boxes in a sleeping bag, his daily experience is a hell of a lot worse than mine. And the faster that you can kind of contextualize it to the sort of broader human experience and kind of just smile at it, you know, and go, this is, this is ridiculous but sort of almost not take pity on yourself and not reflect, you know, not think about it for too long. Actually, just bottom line, the happier you will be um, because you'll be able to skate above those kind of incidences and not worry about them too much. And at the end of the day, you go into a client meeting and someone doesn't choose to work with you because of an incident like that or because you've got kind of mud on the color of your shirt where a bus has hit a pothole and splashed you in a load of crap. Well, then that wasn't a relationship worth pursuing anyway. So, mm. you know, that's it. Yeah, I, I think I think there's so much value in what you just said there, and and uh, something that you said that I want to come back to, which is that you know discomfort. There's nothing bad about discomfort, and 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 also that you can actually handle a lot more than what you think. You know, these are two ancient ideas that have been taught for just thousands of years, right? And it seems like we would have got the picture by now but we still don't like, you know, even the Stoics talked about, Hey, listen, like there's, there's nothing bad. About, I mean, you, you pretty much recited a, a, a Stoic line. It's like, you know, there's nothing bad about being hungry. And in fact, like when was the last time that you were so hungry that anything would have tasted good? Because when you're able to experience that kind of discomfort, then life becomes a lot more beautiful. It becomes a lot more meaningful because you understand, wow, like I live in such a great life. I have so many great things and I, I don't experience this often. And isn't that a great thing that I don't have to experience this that often. And I just think that that's so important for people to realize that there's nothing, there's nothing bad about discomfort. And, and you understand that, you know, more than most people because you've been through that discomfort. Right. And I wanted, I wanted to also discuss something. Uh, I've got a couple more questions if you have time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, yeah. The second last question I wanted to ask in, in your Ted talk, you discussed the moment that you and your fellow soldiers experienced in battle just before you knew that something was going to happen. And it was kind of, you'd kind of look around, you'd be like, okay, this isn't normal. Right. And, and it's, you know, I've been really studying kind of a lot of, uh, a lot of things lately, but, but it seems like that's almost like an intuitive response, right? It's, 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 it's something Mm. deeply biological within you that when you're in a high pressure situation, it's almost as if you're in that flow state where you can only focus on the job at hand. And when you're in that flow state and you release your mind of all of these other things that you would normally be thinking about, you're able to see things just from a purely biological human perspective that you would never notice before. Can you talk to us about that, that, that moment when you understand something's about to go down and how, how you can kind of conceptualize that? So, um, 
yeah, this is this is really interesting. I've kind of thought a lot about this. Um, the way I think about intuition now is that it is more to do with your nurture, your kind of human nature telling you something. And I think in the modern world, there's kind of um, there's almost like a, almost like a kind of spectrum of, of kind of um, I, really, I guess behaving. Um, and on the one side, right, you've got your your kind of intuition, your gut sense. On the other side, you you might have data. Now, these two aren't sort of completely op- at opposite ends of the spectrum, but I have a feeling that a lot of people now will seek to ignore this one and seek the data mm-hmm. in order to to prove themselves prove something to themselves now there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with kind of seeking data but equally there are some things that are really hard to measure and therefore the quality of data can often be a bit rubbish to be honest so for example um a lot of people will say to me like you know kind of how do you measure how do you measure the value of the programs that you sort of implement and I'm like, well, look, I, I'll measure whatever you want me to measure. You know, we, we can measure that. But how do you measure the trust? How do you measure the value of a good upbringing? How do you measure the um, effectiveness and health of a relationship? If you can tell me how to do that, then I can tell you how to measure a leadership development program. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of, you know, lots of people will probably, you know, uh, say, oh, you, you absolutely can do it. I'm like, well, I think if leadership is about behavior of leadership is about relationships and, and inspiring people it's it's really difficult to do and i'm just cautious with anyone that sort of says that they can kind of do that um so i've been thinking about how do you kind of how do you sort of balance that how do you listen to your intuition um and i think it's something that you have to keep you have to kind of keep relearning um it's this constant thing of like when you've made a mistake or when you've kind of got something wrong, or when something hasn't worked out quite as you expected, thinking about, right, beforehand, did I get any sense at any point in time that this was sort of going to go south, or this was going to go in this direction? If so, why did I ignore it? That's a really interesting question to kind of reflect on. Or equally, like, you know, if this is a kind of pattern of behavior that I've been demonstrating over and over again, how can I create some sort of data or how can I measure some things that that will maybe give me some some amber or red warnings to help me realize that you you're sailing down the you're going down the wrong path again um and I think that those kind of two spectrums are or that that sort of spectrum that kind of way of thinking is is really helpful but you only kind of really you only kind of really can understand that if you're thinking about like what went well, what didn't go well, what have I learned from that? Equally, like where can my strengths potentially become a, a weakness? Um, I was reading a really good book by uh, David Epstein called Range, which talks about um, actually how uh, a, a breadth of areas of interest or specialism can be really, really valuable because you can sort of draw parallels between sort of two areas um, and creating the space for people's intuition to be able to um, be able to be used or to make decisions is really important in an organization. And the example that they used was the example that he talks about towards the end of the book talks about 
um, NASA and the Challenger disaster. And it's really interesting because it talks about NASA's basically basic kind of cultural philosophy being um, unless you can prove it through data, we're not interested. And I think that, again, a lot of the time, that's, that's not a bad way of behaving. And lots of organizations could shift the needle in that direction and find it really, really helpful. But equally, what if there isn't enough data to prove something, which there wasn't when you dig into the detail of kind of the, the O-rings and the failure of them that caused the NASA disaster? The shuttle engineers couldn't prove that something was wrong because they're like, we don't know. We've never tested this. We're completely outside the parameters for what we know and understand about how this thing will perform. And that intuition, that gut feeling of, I don't think this is going to work, they couldn't relay that to their leadership, to their managers, because they didn't have enough data points to drive the decision and to sort of make that thing happen. Mm. And I think that, you know, when I sort of think about Afghanistan, if someone had said to me, Rod, prove to me, there is something wrong with this picture with this scenario a lot of the time i would be i can't prove it to you i can't tell you why i just know something's not right and the, one of the best leaders i ever worked for who went on to became uh, the commandant general of the, of the royal marines a guy called charlie stickland who's an outstanding leader he said to me and i still remember it to this day he was like he used to have these joining meetings in his house with every single new officer you know, time intensive, probably got loads of better things to do, but, you know, he prioritized his people and that just came through him entirely, you know, uh, top to bottom. And he said to me, he said, you're going into a role as the sort of second in command of a company. Trust your intuition, trust your judgment. The words he exactly used were trust your spidey sense. If you think something is wrong, it's wrong. You may need to go and collect data and find out why, but trust that intuition. That's a voice that has effectively kind of kept your ancestors alive long enough to see you sat in this room in front of me. And therefore there's value in it. So if you think something's wrong, it's definitely wrong. You just need to find out why. And I think that that, again, coming back to helpful principles, helpful ways in which you can sort of live your life, that's really, really helpful. You know, if you were about to start a business with someone and you, you know, you're just not sure whether you trust them, whether they're, right, they're the right person, don't do it. Yeah. Don't do it. Going into partnership in a business with someone is a marriage. And if you think about it in any other terms, then it's not going to work out. Mm. It is a professional marriage. And you have to be really clear about what it is you both want out of that. But equally, if you have any sense that you're like, oh, gosh, I'm not quite sure I trust this guy. You know, if you, if you are aware of their weaknesses and they irritate you, those are going to become massive fissures and cracks in the relationship further down the line. Um, it's going into those things with kind of open eyes, but sort of trusting your intuition, trusting your gut, hugely important. Mm. Damn, that, that's powerful. I really appreciate you sharing all that. Cause you know, that's, that's, that's exactly the sort of stuff that I wanted to talk about. Cause that's, you know, we really don't think about that enough. And I've been really, I've been really trying to get to the bottom of it lately because I, I think exactly what you were saying is, is correct. It's like, maybe we tend to, 
we've become a society of overthinkers to a large degree, mm. I think. And, and that's, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying people should just go out there and forget about, you know, thinking. Uh, but it's like, sometimes you just get a feeling and you know that something's not right or some, or that something is right. And you need to, you need, and, and, and I think what's important about what you're saying is, and especially what you got from, um, from, from your leader, like, if you feel like something's right or it's not right, okay, trust it, but then back it up with the data, right? Like then go out there and find out yeah. why it's right or why it's not, why it's not right. Um, yeah, I, I think, I think that's really powerful stuff. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, no, not at, yeah. all. not at all. I have one more question for you and this might sure. be, I, I don't know if, if it's something that you'll have an answer for or not, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Based on all of your experience in the military, you know, high pressure situations, seeing people in horrible situations, seeing people in good situations, uh, what, what do you find most beautiful about humanity? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what I find most beautiful about humanity? I think it's, I think that we all have the ability to grow and develop and change. Nothing about you in this current moment is permanent. Whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether you're in a place you're really happy with, whether you're, whether you're not at all happy with the situation you'll find yourself, all of it all of it you can do something about, you can change, you can make some decisions that either shift you in a positive direction or, or don't. And I think that ability to have agency over what it is you're doing, where your life is, is a real uniqueness that we have. And I think just living in the West, living in the developed world just means that we have more potential to kind of do that. Um, we recently uh, we recently took over ownership of a of a dog from someone a sort of sprocker sort of Springer cocker spaniel mix. Now, if you're if you're if you're a dog, for example, you are totally a victim of the circumstances of that the owner that takes you on, right? That that's 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 really basically kind of it, isn't it? That your life is dictated entirely by how someone else treats and interacts mm -hmm. with you. Humans are completely different. You have the opportunity to make changes to yourself, make changes to how you live your life, and, and, and proactively seek this concept of happiness. And I think when, when, you, wanna, when you really think about like, what happiness looks like, it's about being satisfied with the things that you've already got. And so, you know, I've thought about, I've spent a lot of time kind of thinking about this sort of concept of, of expectations, management of expectations around others, but also your own expectations. Whenever your expectations are met, you are happy. So you go into Starbucks, you ask for a cup of coffee. If it's made in the way that you are, uh, that you're expecting, you're happy with that, right? And that uniformity is driven by a kind of Starbucks standard for how they make coffee all the way around the world, right? If you think about Whenever you're happy with an organization, 
it's because they meet your expectations or maybe they slightly mm. exceed them. Whenever you're unhappy, it's because there's a gap in your expectations and what you get. That's why people get unhappy and frustrated with organizations. But equally, it's why people get unhappy and frustrated with their lives because there's a gap between what they've got and what they think they should have. Mm. And actually, happiness is not necessarily driven by achieving what you've got. It's about being happy with what you've got and reducing that level of expectation. So if you can be thankful, and this takes some time, I'm not saying that this is easy, mm. but if you can be thankful for the fact that you have access to food in your house, that you have a warm building around you and you go to bed in a safe and secure environment, everything else on top of that becomes a bonus. And I really try and sort of think about that, um, or I really kind of find that, that helpful to think about. And we all have the capacity to think like that, but it requires work, it requires reflection, and it requires the desire to change ourselves. And I think one of the biggest problems of the world is that everyone wants to change someone else. No one or fewer people are willing to look internally and seek to change themselves. And if you're unhappy, if you're unhappy with where you are, or if your expectations aren't being met, it's your problem. So think about how you're going to solve it. Because guess what? The world was here first. You have sort of come into it. Uh, your needs are almost kind of secondary to that. So think about, those are just some things I think are kind of, I guess I found helpful and that I think other people might be able to find helpful as well. Awesome. I love it. I think that was a badass answer to the question. And uh, <laughs> I, I guess finally, I just I want to thank you so much, Rod. Like this was such a good conversation. You're always welcome on the show and I'd love to support you in any way that I can. And um, for anyone out there who, you know, owns a company or, you know, is after some sort of leadership coaching, uh, you know, can you tell them a little bit about leadership forces and, and, and what you do? Sure. Um, so leadershipcourses.com uh, is the website. Um, some of my ideas are on there. I, I like to try and kind of write blogs and, um, and sort of share my way of thinking kind of as, as sort of as much as possible. Um, recently, I've been doing sort of quite a lot of thinking around the sort of diving into the concepts of sort of what leadership is, kind of what it looks like. Um, and the more I think about it, I think, you know, leadership is about behavior. Behavior is based upon context. So what leaders have to be able to do is understand the context that's facing them and then choose different ways of behaving. So the example I used in terms of kind of intuitive um, making decisions based on gut feel and kind of using data, that's an example of a kind of, of a spectrum of behavior. But there are a variety of different sort of spectrums. Um, this, I think, is a sort of slightly different way of kind of thinking about leadership. Um, but, you know, there's, there's kind of plenty of stuff on the website that sort of explains kind of what it is we do. Um, we do everything from kind of, uh, you know, speeches around leadership, around the kind of principles of high performance, coaching, all the way through to like full leadership development programs for executive teams and management teams or for high potentials in organizations. Um, and I, I love what I'm doing. It's kind of difficult now for me to sort of, divorce away kind of some of the philosophical approaches that I sort of come across because, you know, as, as you know, um, stoicism came before cognitive behavioral therapy. It kind of under, mm. underpins that sort of way of thinking. Um, so it's quite hard for me to sort of divorce the concepts apart. Um, so 
so yeah that's that's really what i'm i'm doing so you know people can get in touch with me through through the website um and my my email address which i'm happy to share roderick dot yap at leadershipforces.com um so yeah awesome yeah well i'll put all of the links in the show notes as well so that people can find you there and uh again rod thanks so much for coming on the show and hopefully we'll have you again uh, back here soon no worries thank you very much simon pleasure Okay, so there you go, my interview with Roderick Yap. I'm sure that you guys enjoyed that as much as I did and make sure you head to his website there and show him some love as well. Uh, But I hope that you enjoyed that and I'll talk to you guys next time. But until then, I hope that this episode has helped you on your rise to the good life. Ciao. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Practical Stoic community and everything to do with this podcast, then just go to my website, simonjedrew.com and subscribe to the Practical Stoic Weekly, a newsletter that I send out every week with updates and all sorts of great Stoic insights. You can also find me everywhere online by searching Simon J. E. Drew. See you next time.